Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's most robust environmental news hour, environmental discussion show. We're on CIUT 89.5 FM, Canada's, I mean, Canada's nothing at all. Canada is nothing at all. This is CIUT 89.5 FM, or your local community radio station, or your podcast platform. And my name is David Hostetter. I'm Stephen Hostetter. And I am Lauren Latour. And yeah, we do kind of, if, if we're trying to stay away from news, it's like, what are we? Commentary? Opinion? Op-ed? Platitudinous disposal of everything you dreamed was true, and in fact it is. Yeah, inane babbling is, <laughs> is actually what it is. Yeah. Your most audacious hopes and dreams are all true. And Stefan will be interviewing Mr. Jeremy Appel, a journalist who recently attended a carbon capture and storage conference. Yes. Now, when we say that, I guess these are companies trying to convince the people going there to invest in their technologies. It sounds like it's largely just oil companies talking about how they can keep doing stuff. And half of the Alberta caucus seemed to also speak at it from conversations with him. But yes, basically, it's companies who are trying to convince the government to give them even more money to do carbon capture utilization and storage. How to give more money to us. <laughs> In two easy days. Mm. And we will have that great interview and some discussion of other stories related to that. But first, Lauren recently saw a tweet. That's, <laughs> that's always that's always what it is. Is Lauren saw a tweet. That's our new segment, folks. <laughs> um, yeah, Lauren saw a tweet today. Um, we record on Wednesdays, and uh, Wednesday of this week is um, the UN. What is it? UNSG UN Sustainable Development Goals Summit, which is part of UN Climate Week in New York City. That's where like all of my colleagues are, half of your call. It's, it's where everybody is this week and it's where world leaders are gathering to make, speaking platitudinous, platitudinous statements about, about climate action. And um, there was just this kind of, I don't know, fun little moment today where I think, I don't want to say with absolute certainty, because again, it was just a tweet. Um, it appears as though, I think it was the president or leader of Chile um, kind of called out Canada and JT for our continued fossil fuel expansion and how, like, what was it? What was the exact wording? Um, oh, being, oh, I guess just one of, but being one of the largest expanders of fossil fuels in the last year. So like, that's kind of cool because it just means that like, Something we all know to be true, which is that Canada is a really wicked climate laggard, is also blatantly obvious at the international level. And whenever our government is publicly called out for it and gets a little bit of humiliation and shaming, like that's always a good thing. Like up until like yesterday, I think it wasn't totally clear that Canada was even going to be allowed to make a statement um, at this climate summit because theoretically there was like a ticket to entry um, in the form of like climate action and if you didn't like meet a certain expectation you wouldn't be allowed to speak and up until yesterday it was unclear if we were going to be allowed to and i mean like kind of bummer that we were because it, it validates us a little bit but at least we're being publicly called out in other country statements which is positive so like that was fun that was a fun yeah. little moment for us all <laughs> yeah and honestly that's will tie into a lot of the conversation the rest of the way through this hour uh, about the fact that 
Canada is obsessed with trying to find out ways that it can keep drilling oil and, and do things. In fact, Daniel Smith said basically exactly that during this conference. And so we love to keep drilling oil and pretending we're doing stuff about climate change. Although, to be fair, so does the states. They are also touting record amounts of oil drilling while also saying they're doing things on climate. However, at least the things they're doing on climate sound more fun. Uh, namely, that uh, also today on Wednesday, Joe Biden announced the that he would launch a climate core, which is for 20,000 young adults to build trails, plant trees and help install solar panels and do other work uh, to boost conservation and help prevent catastrophic wildfires. This has been something that the that the Sunrise Movement and other groups have been pushing the states to do basically since the Green New Deal was discussed. And so it's exciting that it actually exists now. Uh, it's like through executive order, so it will just happen. Obviously, 20,000 people is not a lot of people in the comparison with the whole United States. However, the fact that it exists means that it's much more likely to expand and grow than if it didn't exist at all. And so it is a win. Huge shout out to the Sunrise Moon for not dropping this after, especially after last year and uh, the Inflation Reduction Act had so much climate conversations around it for them to sort of be like, nope, not what we wanted. We want a climate core and go do it. And then to actually succeed at getting this is is a huge shout out to, to the movement and to, to the Sunrise success in actually getting policies passed, despite uh, the very messy nature that is the, uh, is the United States political system. Yeah, I mean, like you said, 20,000 is, is, is relatively small, but like that's still like it's a good freaking start. And what I'm hoping to see from this is other countries or, or maybe other jurisdictions in some various capacity looking at this and seeing what a political boon it is. And I think a boon is a good thing. It is. A political good. Yes, a, a good political thing, because it's in addition to it being like, yes, good from a climate standpoint, because it's it's people like planting trees and working on trails and I don't know, hopefully doing like clean energy stuff. It's a job creator and it's a job creator for a generation of people who are who are really financially struggling. So it's it's a fantastic initiative. So excited to see it getting up and running somewhere. Really excited to see what the potential ripple effect is, because here in so-called Canada, we kind of just always look up to like Daddy Biden to like see what he's doing and raise sort of the, the level of ambition. So I'm really excited to see the success of this in the States and then how it hopefully trickles down to what's going on here. Um, and if you're a listener and you're like, um, that's such a good idea. I want one here. Yeah, girl, me too. So like um, organizations that are already working to try to make something like this climate core a, a, a thing in our region in so-called Canada is the Climate Emergency Unit. So if you haven't already heard about them, give them a quick Google. Um, it's headed up by um, a really great guy named Seth Klein who wrote a book called... Um, Oh God, the good war that came out a couple of years ago. And this, this kind of climate core was, was one of the solutions that was proposed in that book. And that is now a solution that's being promoted by the climate emergency unit. So check them out, see how you can get involved in that effort. And like, honestly, this seems like the type of thing that if you're the type of person who like loves to write an op-ed and submit something to a local publication, this seems like something that would make for great op-ed fodder is like, look at this amazing new initiative that Biden's got up and running. Wouldn't it be so cool to have something modeled after that in 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 Canada, in in my province, in my region or whatever. So, um, yeah, lots of ways to to keep this idea going or or kind of um, amp up the pressure um, on our side of the border for a similar climate core. Should we do a music break or should we just do this stuff here? I think a quick music break maybe might be fun. Fun. 
Unfun music. We're back with the green majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And the International Institute for Sustainable Development it has such a fancy title. Yeah. But this is probably a concrete building in northern Winnip- in, nor- in the north end of Winnipeg. They have a they have a number of <laughs> uh, teams across Canada. Okay. A think tank based in Winnipeg. I thought this was some European official thing. This is some. This is probably owned by big sustainable energy. IISD. This is a UN-approved international body of centuries-long pedigree. Is that true? Based in Winnipeg. No, I'm trying to make it sound legit. <laughs> I mean, it, it's le- they're good people. It is legit. Yeah, IISD is great. Yeah. Okay. Well, they've issued a report stating that carbon capture and storage requires sustained government subsidies to be economically viable and will continue to require those. Renewable technologies, however, have only needed government investment at the beginning of their development. Uh, They also argue that CCS may still be needed in the short term for difficult sectors like cement and steel. And their policy advisor, Laura Cameron, has also stated that CCS doesn't appear to be able to bring as much carbon reduction as we need. Yeah, so we get into a lot of this in the conversation uh, with Jeremy um, about what he different conversations. There's a couple parts of it about the problem they have about once they capture the carbon, for it to really be viable, they have to find a way to make money with the carbon. Like just putting it underground does not really make a great business model, and so that is one of the major problems with CCUS is that the number one way they're currently using car using captured carbon is actually to pump out more oil from harder to reach places. And so, yeah, I mean, this does not surprise me. The The fact that this is what this research is saying, nothing about the interview will um, make you believe that any less. And it will give a couple more little factoids towards these, this belief that really it comes down to either, yeah, like it in a couple of these places like cement and steel, it is expected to be needed for a while, especially st- cement because it's even harder to, to um, it's even harder to decarbonize than, uh, than steel to my understanding. But there, it basically would just be a government program at that point. Like there's not a lot of ways to make money off this unless there's a very huge price on carbon which the people who are pushing this really don't like. Yeah, it would almost need to be like, and I don't want this to be the case because again, if we like a CC, CCS and CCUS continues to not actually be that scalable and incredibly expensive, like it's it's not a worthy thing for us to invest our dollars in, especially because it just sort of gives permission to oil and gas companies to continue to extract. But like theoretically, I think the only way CCS would 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 quote unquote work is if it were like, a government provided service almost. And like, yeah, maybe that's going to need to be a thing in 300 years time when there's still a, a heck ton of carbon in the air that we can't get rid of. But like, but anyway, like I said, we don't, we don't want CCS. It's not scalable. And also again, it just gives social license to oil and gas companies to continue to extract. And half the time it's just like, I don't know, it's relied on for like 
fudgy net zero accounting. Oh yeah, they, they've I, one thing I learned in the conversation, and again we should clarify the difference between CCUS and direct air capture. So CCUS is only when things are being burned or when they're creating it, uh, the carbon. Whereas direct air capture is just pulls it out of the air itself. But one of the things that made was most surprising to me in the conversation that we'll get to is that currently the only part of CCUS that even sort of works is before the combustion capturing carbon. So even right now, trying to capture carbon after it's been burned has really not been effective. And so, like... It's such a tech, it's a technology that is not really real and only works in such a limited spot. And of course, only even in the best case scenario is attached to large plants and industry like this and can never exactly exist in all the other ways we burn um, oil and in, in fossil fuels. And so, like, yeah, it's well, yeah, we'll get into it a lot in the in the conversations. I don't I don't want to get too far into this, but it is sketchy. Enbridge has been flagged for false advertising by three climate groups after claiming that natural gas is the cheapest way to heat your home. Keith Brooks of Environmental Defense argues that heat pumps are now more affordable than gas, actually. I don't know anything more about that than what I've just stated, Stefan. Um, Even more documents are showing ExxonMobil's public deception... uh, Sorry, even more documents showing ExxonMobil's public deception have been obtained by the Wall Street Journal, this time showing how during Rex Tillerson's reign from 2006 to 2016, Exxon continued to invest in undermining climate science while publicly pledging to fund, to stop funding the skeptics, and then also claiming to support the Paris Agreement. Yeah, I mean, I guess two more examples of exactly how and why we should not trust the fossil fuel industry. Um, one thing that we thought would be interesting to bring up in this larger conversation as we head towards the interview is some of the work that Amy Westerville has done in talking about uh, petroganda and the ways that the oil industry and specifically the oil industry in this case, but it can be pretty much, I think, flipped on to the coal industry and other fossil fuel industries like Enbridge. Um tries to delay and muddy the waters. And and one of them is, as the larger conversation we're having today about uh, CCUS will be, is around the idea of we are part of the solution. And so you should keep inviting us to the tables, despite we keep doing things. And another one of them, you know, is around this idea of constantly still saying it's for it's cheaper, right? Like this Enbridge uh, idea that that what they're really doing is lifting people out of poverty and helping people is a really common refrain from fossil fuels and fossil places. And one of the, and that has been very much debunked time and time again, a, in a large scale in terms of power across Canada, um, the David Suzuki foundation has done some incredible work mapping out how a switch to renewables would also help with energy security um, or energy and energy poverty and actually lifting people out of uh, energy poverty and giving them enough power at a price they can afford. And also from a standpoint of things like, you know, natural gas and things like that, where you see at different times, the, those prices spiking and, and it, whereas in compared when, the, uh, where, well, I got this eventually. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's bad. 
Um, <laughs> however, as uh, this has shown, places where energy is is cheaper and we can make energy cheaper, heat pumps often become a much better option uh, quite quickly. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if those two zenders are, are, are even going to be spliceable together. You like so? I'm not even sure if what you just said was grammatically following, syntactically following. Okay, well, how far back should I go? You were saying that natural gas prices spike? Well, like, yeah, I mean, again, like... As you're, just, you, you're just reiterating the point that heat pumps may be more affordable than natural gas. Well, heat pump, yeah, I mean, there's been studies that show that heat pumps are more affordable than gas, yes. But I guess the spiking thing has more to do with supply and demand. Like, I'm re- referencing in that specific instance, places like Texas, where natural gas became very hard to come by during the extreme weather, and so their prices spiked incredibly because they were so reliant on actually natural gas. So to, to argue that it's always going to be cheaper is a myth of the, the fact that there will all be enough supply, which is not necessarily the case. But anyways, to you, Lauren. Um, yeah, just to, so with the, when you, when you wanted us to talk about the, what is it called? Petroleum, pet, um, petroganda. petroganda, the website's fantastic. The work they've been doing is so good. Um, just sort of really bringing to the forefront the the fact that like all of these messages we hear all the time um, in regards to oil and gas and the disinformation and, and just the constant sort of rhetoric we see from either oil and gas companies or, or the far right in support of oil. It's like these are all PR tactics. There's a page that they call the glossary um, where they kind of like spell out all these different PR tactics. They're all immediately recognizable. You'll resonate with them right away. And I think it's actually what they've been putting together is an incredibly important and valuable resource for those of us who work in anything adjacent to climate communications, because it allows us to immediately recognize and identify their playbook and counteract it because that's really all it is. It's like you realize like we've been having these same conversations over and over again for 30 years and earlier than that, because these PR companies have existed for way longer than that. And it's and it breaks it. It just breaks it all down to like really sort of tangible, easy to push back on um, arguments and and points that they make. Um, So I had a lot of fun poking around the website would totally encourage listeners to go poke around it as well um, because it's like deeply fascinating and useful. <coughs> Sorry. Um, you want to say the website n- name? It's like it's drill.media or something. It's... Yeah. So um, and the website itself is drill.media slash news slash petroganda. So P-E-T-R-O-G-A-N-D-A. Exactly what you would think it is dash zero the, the one i've pulled up is, is is dash zero one but um they have a bunch of different pages but but that's what it is it's, it's drilled media's petroganda series and they're all totally fascinating um they have these like five different frameworks for narratives that are again like immediately recognizable and so fascinating they've they've broken it down into like the original narrative which is energy security the economy versus environment um the argument that we make your life work we're part of the solution. And then the fifth one is like the world's greatest neighbor. And I think the one that I would say that I would either like it, I don't know if I would add it or if it just kind of threads it all together is the narrative. It's almost like a meta narrative, um, at least in in Canada, in in quote unquote Alberta, um, which is that it, which is sort of like the um the ties to national and community identity 
that like that I think is is very much a part of like Albertan ethos or oil country ethos and has been really leveraged and driven home and repeated over and over again by the oil and gas industry, which is like not even that like we're the world's best neighbor, but like we are you, you are us, your identity is irrevocably tied up in us and there's no way around it. If we cease to exist, you cease to exist and you become a different community and you become a different people. Um, anyway, that would be my humble addition to Drilled's excellent work. All right. And finally, the state of California is suing Exxon, Shell, BP, ConocoPhillips, and Chevron to try to make them pay into a fund that will deal with future climate disasters. A state judge in Montana sided with climate activists last month and ruled that the state's support of fossil fuels violated their constitutional right to a healthy environment. And the city of Thorold, Ontario, has voted unanimously, the city council has voted unanimously to reject a gas plant that would be turned on to manage peak electricity demand. Hey, three wins. What a great way to uh, end this part of the segment. Um, I mean, it's great to see California and uh, Gavin Newsom speak truth to power. You know, they are the fifth biggest economy in the world, just the state of California. And so to have someone like that actually try to hold them accountable is hopeful we'll see you know i'm have been burned by uh democratic politicians before as this show has made very clear so i'm not holding my breath however i will at least appreciate that he is at least calling them out um and that third point i mean again we wouldn't need these gas plants if the ford government had continued on the plan to replace these things with renewables and yet he canceled all of them and so now we're trying to force down these gas plants to different communities that did not want them and it's entirely because we made the decision five six years ago to drastically reduce our ability to uh, have and bring online new renewable energy and i will say that that is also really hampering our city, especially cities' abilities to meet their net zero targets because the power is getting dirtier rather than cleaner over time. So that's just not as good news. But shout out to Thorold Ontario for rejecting the gas plant. To you, Lauren. Um, no, I was just going to say, if I can add one more win that we don't have captured here, um, it's that, again, today we record on Wednesdays, um, this morning uh, in communities all across so-called Canada, there was this really awful um, anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ march that was happening. And all I heard about all day was how fantastic the counter-protesting was and how in most cases, if not all, at least all the ones I heard about, there were more um pro lgbtq and like pro trans um protesters than there were um like bigoted protesters so like that was like another that was a big movement win i think the fact that there was like such a showing of support for queer and trans folks across the country um at least that was very much what what was visible to me in so called ottawa and i think what is what's also cool about that is that that comes on the heels of like we know an entire weekend of awesome climate um mobilizing in the streets um and then several other uh, um several other uh, like really visible demonstrations, demonstrations that we saw for migrant uh, migrant workers rights or migrant rights um, and uh, some protests in certain cities um, in in support of searching um, landfills in 
Saskatoon, I believe, um, in support of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. So it's just like, it's just been this week of really visible, really awesome mobilizing and organizing um, and in the streets demonstrations by progressive movements all across Canada. And I think that in itself is a really cool win. And I just wanted to sort of like blast that as well if we're ending on a high note. Amazing. And I'll go to add one last protest that you can attend if you are in Toronto next Wednesday, because this show will come out on Friday before we have another show is the March for Land that is uh, that is happening at 12 o'clock, starting in Grange Park uh, next Wednesday to the 27th, which is a group of, I believe it is five indigenous nations protesting logging and mining on their um, on their lands. And so if you're in Toronto, come support that. It's going to be a, it's a huge uh, mobilization of folks all coming into the city to, to go to legislature and tell them that they're rejecting these encroachments on their, on their territory. And, you know, as we as allies have to show up. So if you're available, 12 o'clock Grange Park on the 27th. We're going to do some music and come back with seventh interview with Jeremy Appel about carbon capture, uh, conference. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, featuring great shows such as Tech Won't Save Us, Press Progress's Sources, and the Forgotten Corner Podcast. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or maybe you found us on the podcast, which we found anywhere podcasts can be found, including the Harbinger Media Network. And in fact, we are joined by a fellow Harbinger Media Network reporter and journalist, Jeremy Appel, who also, along with being a reporter and a journalist, you are a you have a couple different podcasts on the Harbinger Media Network, and also you can read his work at readtheorchard.org, which is what we'll be talking about in a second. But perhaps before I do, do you want to tell us the couple of shows uh, that you do on Harbinger? Yes, I co-host Big Shiny Takes, where we sort of read the worst of Canadian punditry and lampoon the people who wrote it. We actually just recorded an episode on Joe Wormington's tribute to, you know, the, the, the boys in blue who died making the ultimate sacrifice where he called up Don Cherry for a quote, which is great. And also the Forgotten Corner, which is more of like me and my co-host Scott Schmidt, who lives down in Medicine Hat, Alberta. For those of you who know where that is, it's like near really close to the border with Saskatchewan and Southern Alberta. Anyways, where, you know, we do a lot of interviews. Sometimes we just talk about what's going on in the news. 
And yeah, so those are sort of the two podcast projects I'm involved with. Amazing. But here today, we're talking about something different. We're talking about some, a couple of pieces that you published at Read the Orchard, which was about Carbon Capture Canada. And so for those who may have never heard of this, can you just tell our listeners what Carbon Capture Canada even is? Well, it's an annual Canada-wide conference where all these oil and gas people and pipeline people meet to talk about how they can do exactly what they've been doing that's contributed to the climate crisis while the government gives them money to pretend to be part of the solution by investing in this expensive, not economically viable carbon capture, utilization, and storage technology, which does exist, but not on the scale by these companies' own admission, not on the scale they needed to, which is why they want governments to give them money. I, in my piece, well, it's headlined, Carbon Capture Canada's Coachella for greenwashing, you know, because so there are all these different acts there, right? Like Danielle Smith, Alberta Premier, former opponent of carbon capture, like in her previous political career 10 years ago when she was in opposition and the Alberta PCs were throwing all this money at, at carbon capture. She was saying that it's a waste and now she loves it. But yeah, I mean, she was like the, 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 you know, the big event. That's when all the like journalists descended on the Edmonton convention center to hear Danielle speak and, and you know, scrum her after Brian Jean, Alberta's energy and critical minerals minister also spoke as did Rebecca Schultz, Alberta's environment and protected areas minister. There were sort of a series of like panel discussions in these more like, you know, one-on-one -on -one fireside chats going on in like the main convention hall with all these like industry executives and a few First Nations leaders there, some of whom had some pretty critical remarks actually. And then the other room, sort of the, the exhibition hall, sort of in each corner, they had what were called knowledge bars, which I'm told turned into like actual bars when they had like an industry networking reception the first night. But basically, one was sponsored by the Pathways Alliance, which I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with. One was sponsored by Enbridge, another by Capital Power, and a fourth by Worley. They're an Australian energy company, chemical and resources outfit. And so they had, they had like talks throughout the day that were like with like one or two, maybe three speakers. And then what sort of drew me towards them, especially on the second day was that you can actually ask them questions, which you of course couldn't do in the conference hall which was more like stage managed. And yeah, obviously, you know, it was sponsored by Shell, which I think tells you a lot about sort of who the target audience is here. And Shell, of course, has a carbon capture facility near Edmonton, the West facility that has been up and running for like a decade. So they were sort of like an early adopter and and yeah, I guess that, that would be like a general overview of the festivities. 
So, yeah, I mean, it sounds a little bit just like every other conference except focused on this very specific kind of. I mean, we've had folks come on and talk about CCUS in different ways, and it's always interesting to talk to different people from different perspectives because, like, I mean, I will say actually that most environmentalists across the board see no place in the future for carbon capture and storage. Most people, if they're talking about a place for any carbon capture, it's direct air capture. So it's just pulling it out of the air itself rather than than this other type, mainly because this other type basically requires you to still be creating carbon in all the other ways, which, yeah, a little easier just to avoid altogether. But on that point, maybe you could talk a little bit about Daniel Smith's speech, because there's a quote in your piece where... She says something very close to, it's not about stopping oil, it's about stopping emissions or something. And that is just wrong. Like, nowhere in anyone's explanation, even the most, even in the models that are the most positive for carbon capture, they still include phasing out fossil fuels. Like, that is not a part of it, ever. Yeah, no, it, it, exactly. And also, it, of course, ignores the fact that I'm not aware of a single carbon capture project that captures 100% of the carbon. I know the one in Saskatchewan, which was, I believe, the first in the world at a power plant. It was a, cold, a coal-fired plant near Estevan, I believe, Capital Dam, was what, was what the project was called. Its capacity was 90%. Now, the goal was to capture like 75, 80%. Just a few years ago, it captured, uh, I believe, 44%, right? So, I mean, this technology is not a silver bullet. And when you press people on it, like not, not people like Danielle Smith, but people in the industry, both like, you know, talking to just now, networking for lack of a better term with them and also at the like sort of more intimate like knowledge bars they're like yeah yeah it's not a silver bullet but it's it's to buy us time till renewable energy prices go down and it's like but renewable energy prices are going down and the price of carbon capture is not and yeah because I, I think at the end of the day yeah you know ccus is is as I hinted at earlier, it's just a way for oil and gas companies to extract money from investors, but investors usually aren't that credulous. So governments, right? And of course, Smith, uh, I mean, is a huge believer now uh, in carbon capture. She's always been a huge natural gas person, even going back to her days as like a, a, as a newspaper columnist. She's just like, natural gas is the future. Of course, you know, and I, the contrast, I would be remiss if I, I didn't point out that while Danielle Smith's saying, oh, yeah, we're going to fund these fossil fuel projects, like they need government support to get off the ground. At the same time, she's, well, not exactly at the same time, but like, you know, a, a month ago, she just announced a total moratorium on approvals for new renewable energy projects because of all these things that are unknown about them in the future. Like what happens to like out of commission windmills, who cleans that up type of thing. 
which of course is a much more pressing concern with like oil and gas infrastructure, but is also a concern with carbon capture. I mean, there's so much uncertainty around it and, and it, it, it's almost like that's the selling point. It's like, we can learn more about it if you give us money to test it out. And so, and, and the question is then, do we have time for this shit? And I suspect not. I, 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 I suspect it would be a lot more cost effective, you know, leaving aside, you know, my sort of more radical political inclinations, it, it would just be a sounder business investment to let renewables proliferate and to tell these oil and gas companies, if you want to pay for carbon capture and storage, you do it. Other Or you can just invest in renewables. But it, it, it seems to me to just be a way to, in many cases, just drill to the last drop of oil and to be paid by the government to do so. Well, just one last thing. I mean, we talked about like enhanced oil recovery, which to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's credit, the tax credit for carbon capture excludes projects where sequestered carbon is, is going to be used to drill for more oil, which of course creates more emissions because you're drilling for more oil, unless we have carbon capture, like literally everywhere. Like if, you know, if the sky is like covered with like a carbon captured device, then yeah, maybe that will reduce emissions. But I feel like there are more economically sound ways of doing that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's funny how everything is free market until the oil industry is concerned. Like Alberta had an absolutely booming renewable energy business. It was the biggest in Canada. And to be like, actually, that must stop. But let's give billions of dollars to CCUS because we think it's the future. And like the numbers that stuck out to me in your piece is that there's this big, huge project that's being touted. That's $16.5 billion that I'll ask you to explain in a second. And then slightly further down, there's someone talking about how the big opportunity in CCUS could mean that it could be a $7 billion market by 2028. So in five years, the entire market for CCUS could be $7 billion coming from an industry person, so almost certainly inflated numbers. And yet we're going to spend $16 billion, more than twice as much than the entire market they are anticipating on one project that everyone's yeah, talking about. Yeah, I mean, that was wild to me, too, when he was like, yeah, the, the, the industry's booming. It'll be worth $7 billion in, in five years. And it's like, that doesn't sound very booming to me, given the costs associated with getting it off the ground. And so you were referring to, of course, the big pathways project that, yeah, it's being advertised as was $16, 17000000000 billion. And, and that's how it's referred to in much of the media coverage, which is why I went with that number. But I, afterwards, I, I was told that actually, that's just like, that's like a fraction of it. That's like, I think what Pathways is willing to pay. And then the actual cost of it goes upwards of, you know, 80 billion. And yeah, I mean, there's just so much smoke and mirrors around it because you've got this, this storage hub, which I think that's the 16 million. 
or 16.5 billion, billion with a B. And then you've got this massive pipeline and that's right. All these pipeline companies are now like, this is great. We can just keep building pipelines to transfer sequestered carbon. And, and yeah, and, and, and I mean, so there are all these sorts of investments needed to make it happen. I know also the Cold Lake First Nation chief, Kelsey Jacko, said this is being rammed down our throats. Like there's been very little and he said this at the conference, right? I mean, he spoke on a panel with energy executives and that, you know, they, I mean, they being First Nation in Northern Alberta, of course, they've had lots of fossil fuel projects around them and it's resulted in their water getting tainted by elite tailing ponds. It's resulted in their caribou population being diminished because of all the, the deforestation associated with fossil fuel production. And he's like, I mean, this is, I have no reason to believe that the exact same stuff isn't going to happen, right? I mean, we don't know. He said, we don't know what, like, okay, we store this carbon underground. Then what? Like, just stays there forever? What does it do to the earth? What are the chances of leaking? And none of these companies will say that because they don't know. And if they did know, they, I mean, it's not like they would care. So, you know, it's funny, right-wingers always talk about, oh, social engineering and pursuing what's proven, these sort of proven ways of doing anything rather than these like ambitious undertakings. And I'm not accusing them of hypocrisy because I think the underlying motive isn't, isn't contradictory. It's just to keep things going as they are in finding new and innovative ways to do that, right? It's neoliberalism. It's not like Edmund Burke-like style conservatism that, that is being espoused by these people. It's much more radical ideology. Yeah. It's amazing the action of bringing people up on stage to basically be like, this is terrible. Why are you doing this? But yeah, no, it's funny. Actually, the first day opened with an address from someone who works for Alexander First Nation, a guy by the name of Nolan Arcand. It was actually quite extraordinary. He, he was just saying, like, why are we doing these land acknowledgements? Like, it's so easy post about reconciliation on LinkedIn, but we all have like the pictures of water at your table. Like, are those going towards indigenous communities that need them? And then, of course, everything he said was like completely ignored after. In fact, the MC of the event the next morning at the kickoff said, now I know Nolan Arkan said that land acknowledgements are meaningless, but we're going to do one anyways. And it's just like, obviously, you know, I'm, I, I'm a settler Canadian, but I can only imagine how it must feel like banging your head against the wall when you're brought to speak to these events and people are like, oh yeah, that's interesting. And then just go back to doing exactly what they were doing before, which is really the spirit of uh, carbon capture and utilization and storage. Yeah, no, for sure. And so I'm going to skip ahead to a question and then come back to it, because I think it's a bit relevant to what you just mentioned, which is that you've done a lot of these stories where you've sort of gone into conservative spaces and, and it's like, listen, this is really sort of what you've, what you've done. And I'm curious what you've learned from sort of hearing these people speak when they think they're speaking to their own people, you know, because like it's sort of similar. If you ever want to see what an oil company really thinks, you 
don't listen to anything they say. You just listen to what they have told their investors, right? Because they'll come out and say, oh, we're aligned with net zero. And then they'll turn to the rest and say, but actually, we're going to keep pumping oil at the same rate or more up until 2050 at least. And those two things are obviously different. And the only one they're going to follow is the one they're talking to their investors. And so I'm curious what you have learned sort of from this experience of continually putting yourself in these spaces of a conservative echo chamber and how they talk to each other. Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, I, uh, and I think a, a lot of um, these people really believe they've really internalized sort of the talking points. Um, and so, I mean, that's what comes out of their mouth because that, that's what they genuinely believe. But I, I mean, sometimes the mask does slip. I actually missed this. This was the last panel of, of the conference. And I, I, my friend Taylor Noakes, who's an, another uh, Canadian journalist, he was there covering it for Geesmog. I, I was just like, all right, Taylor, I'm, I'm done for the day. I've got my story. And the last panel, he told me there, there's a guy speaking on it who was just like, yeah, I mean, you're not, you shouldn't lie to people, but you might want to extend the truth a bit. And it, it, it's interesting because they know that media is there, right? I mean, not for most of it, but they know that like there is media attending, right? And similar to, you know, I went to the Conservative Party of Canada's like Stampede Barbecue last year and I thought, oh, they're going to say all these like crazy things. And it was, I mean, they really stuck to their talking points, but... It is interesting hearing the way they sort of justify these things to themselves. Like a fellow who spoke from the company Worley, this Australian company, about how to take carbon capture from theory to practice, right? He was admitting, like, this is all theoretical. Like, yeah, like, on a, like, sort of on a small scale, yeah, like, we, we have, like, pre-combustion carbon capture and it essentially works but it's expensive and what we need is post-combustion to adopt post-combustion on a large scale which we don't have and, and that's why uh you need to get investors on board right that's why you need to enter partnerships with other companies and have like a really clear case to 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 go ahead um with these projects or at least to convince people to Go ahead. So, I mean, there is still a lot of like reading between the lines, but yeah. And I mean, when, when they talk about who we need funding for, it's like, first and foremost, it's the government. And then it's like, yeah, also you might want some private investors, maybe a consortium, maybe some foreign companies, but yeah, I mean, it, it was, it's clear that their entire strategy is based on extracting government subsidies because what private investor is going to invest in something like this unless they know the government is going to pay them out. And yeah, other stuff too. I, I, cause I did part two of this story on the second day, which I sort of locked to paid subscribers, but I'll give uh, green majority listeners a little treat from this. So on the second day, the chair of the conference, Brianne Fox, who I mentioned earlier had said, yeah, I know like land acknowledgements are stupid, but we're going to say one anyways. She, I mean, it was one of the few mentions I, I heard throughout the conference of the wildfires, but what she said, I think is, is really revealing. So I'm going to quote from the, her speech. The time to act is now. 
The national and international support for Canada's wildfires was incredible. This type of national and cross-border collaboration was key to Canada's firefighting and, get ready for this, came to the type of collaboration we need to bring CCUS projects over the finish line. So that's the lesson from, from these wildfires. It's not that, oh, we need to stop pumping carbon dioxide into the air. It's that we all need to work together. And work together to accomplish these CCUS projects, which, again, as I've said, aren't going to actually make a significant dent in the emissions. It's like one of those things was like, what if we tried incredibly hard to do something that won't really work instead of anything else? It's just so much, it's a somewhat of an amazing. Yeah. Like, I mean, right. Of course, we do all need to work together on internationals in national scale to combat climate change. But we need to combat climate change. We don't need to give the companies who created this, you know, essentially a really expensive get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, yeah, and it's a get-out-of-jail-free card that won't even work, right? Like, it will not save us. We cannot keep burning fossils. It doesn't even matter if they manage to capture all of the carbon that they created in one in part of your we don't have time to get into this but part of what you talked about was how so much of this currently is all pre-combustion and they haven't even really figured out post-combustion so once they've burned the stuff and no one's talking about the fact that oil is burned afterwards in people's cars literally that's never happening and so like this is an incredible amount of work to get at a small percentage of all emissions and not even all of those small percentage of all the emissions will get captured and so like you could get a functioning carbon capture on every oil project in Canada, and it still would not prevent the death of the oil industry because we can't burn it either. That's just it. We're so stuck. And, and, and that's another, uh, it reminds me of another point I wanted to bring up, is the fact that you're not going to make any money if this carbon stays underground. <laughs> That's another thing uh, some of the executives you spoke admitted quite openly. Like the, the goal is to get government to invest in the carbon capture, utilization, and storage technology. And then we can find all these market opportunities for sequestered carbon. But what are they? I mean, you know, you, you see all these gimmicky products that, you know, like carbon captured soap and, and, and sneakers made with ink from, from carbon capture. but yeah, I, I don't think there are too many oil companies who are looking to get into the shoe business right now on, on such a small scale too, right? People I spoke to, like just, you know, privately, like sitting at my table and stuff, were just like literally the only way you make money from carbon sitting underground is when there's a carbon tax and then you're saving money on having to pay this carbon tax. But, you know, a lot of these guys don't want to pay carbon tax. So then what? And so the one avenue that does make economic sense for these companies is to use sequestered carbon to emit more carbon through enhanced oil recovery. And I remember I was talking to someone who's there with the University of Alberta, because of course they do a lot of research into like energy and whatnot. And they were just like, yeah, like I know it sounds really counterintuitive, but Enhanced oil recovery has less emissions than traditional ways of drilling for oil. 
And it's like, yeah, okay. But then what happens to the oil? Right. And, you know, I mean, there are just so many contradictions in, in this moment where the, the, the industry is like, okay, our time's running out. How can we delay, delay, delay until someone else deals with it? Right. I mean, that's a, that's a whole thing. Another thing too, it, carbon capture industry is just displacing social responsibility onto everyone else. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And that's really what we're, what we're seeing. Okay, so we're running out of time. And so I want to give you a chance to do two things. One, give our listeners sort of your big takeaway from the event or something that stuck out to you. And two, to tell listeners how they can keep up and follow your work. So those two things, this has been Jeremy Appel, journalist and author. Check out his work at readtheorchard.org. Second part of that question, a lot easier than the first. The first part I would say is that CCUS is like a major distraction from what actually needs to be done. Now, I think that there's a credible case to be made that there's a place for it in things like concrete, where, I mean, we're going to need concrete and there, there's no renewable concrete that I'm aware of at this time. So that seems like it would have a place, but the extent to which CCUS technology will actually be useful to us. It's not useful to the people who are operating it and want to make money, right? And I think that's what it all comes down to is we're sort of caught between a government that wants to sort of gradually phase the oil and gas industry out at some point in, in the distant future, later than it needs to be in this industry that's saying, hold on a sec, what if we did exactly what we're doing now, but you paid us to do. And I think that's what the sort of the carbon capture con comes down to, right? Now, as for where you can find my work, as Stefan said, I publish a newsletter called The Orchard. You can go to it at readtheorchard.org. I also have a book coming out in February about former Alberta premier, Jason Kenney, called Kennyism, Jason Kenney's Pursuit of Power, which is being published by Dundurn Press. So I would urge you to pre-order a copy. You can do so on Dundurn's website. And if you put in, you click find my local bookstore, you put in your postal code and find the closest like independent bookshop that you can pre-order it to. And you can listen to my two podcasts where you found this one. Those are Big Shiny Takes and The Forgotten Corner. Thanks so much for having me. It's not easy being